Coming up in this episode. Physical advantages, which is that for my size, I'm very strong. So the things that I work on are how do you use strength in this context? Um, I don't lift a lot of weights, um, but I definitely do a lot of push-ups and pull-ups and uh, kind of plyometric exercises like that in order to be able to use my strength against a much bigger body and then pull it down into techniques so that I'm not burning myself out. Interesting. Let's focus on the physical attributes, especially around the anti-inflammatory effects you're pursuing with your diet. So as a lot of our listeners know, the ketogenic diet is a common discussion topic on this program. And then one of the interesting things where ketogenic diet has, I've seen, been useful is for power to weight ratio. So like a lot of the Tour de France riders, they, they, they cycle in and out of keto to minimize their weight because they want to be as light as possible. How do you think about the trade-off of anaerobic versus aerobic performance on a ketogenic diet? And in terms of the anti-inflammatory effects, curious to unpack the, the pre-performance as the yeah. recovery as well. So Welcome to the HVMN podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health via Modern Nutrition. Sylvie, really an honor to have you on the HVMN podcast. And this is a special one because besides Professor Tim Noakes, who dialed in from South Africa, you might be the furthest distance away from the San Francisco HQ of our podcast studio. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I actually listen to your podcast a lot, so I'm pretty stoked to be on it. So for folks who might have not have followed you in the past, you're a very accomplished Muay Thai fighter. And you also have a lot of experience documenting your journey with keto and intermittent fasting. Most people are familiar with MMA, UFC, and probably the casual listener, the casual viewer will realize that Muay Thai is one of the most brutal, aggressive looking combat sports there is. So how did you get into that world? <laughs> uh, got into Muay Thai when I was living in New York with my husband. Um, and I had never done any kind of combat sport before. But then I met this, at the time, 70-year-old uh, Thai man who was teaching Muay Thai out of his basement in New Jersey. His name is Master K. And his love for the sport and his passion for it just um, injected my heart with this love for Muay Thai. And it's basically just been this snowball uh, process since then that has consumed my entire life. So now I'm living in Thailand <laughs> as a professional full-time fighter. Um, and... It's pretty incredible. It, it really is something that you have to um, dedicate yourself very fully to. 100%. I mean, in any combat situation, you, I mean, it might sound overly dramatic, but it's somewhat life or death when, when you're in the ring, you're trying to, you know, essentially kill the other person within the constructs and rules of Muay Thai. Um, so, can you walk through that journey? I mean, it sounds like it's almost... A, a very quick flip from, oh, I saw the beautiful art of Muay Thai to I'm going to dedicate my career into being a professional fighter. What did that look like for you? It was um, it was gradual, but that graduation was pretty fast. <laughs> I never wanted to fight when I first started. I really just loved the beauty of the sport. Um, but what I understood from him and what he was teaching me and kind of the ethic of Muay Thai where – the reason it's so brutal or why it's called so violent is because it truly is a martial art that developed out of fighting, like true battle. And so every move is designed to end the fight. It's really not a point system, even though when it became 
um, a sport of Muay Thai, you know, you can win or lose on points. Been doing it for about a year, I realized that I kind of didn't know anything unless I could do it under pressure. And that's why I decided I wanted to fight is like, I can kick a bag that's, what is that? It's like um, blood sport where the guy's like bag not, brick not hit back or something. It's like the bag's not putting any pressure on me. Um, And I wanted to be able to have composure and beauty under pressure. That initial desire to want to fight in order to be able to do these things under pressure has basically extended itself through my now more than 10 year career of becoming more and more calm and composed um, under the pressure of someone, like you said, trying to kill you, trying to hurt you. Um, And it's very hard to do. So I think that the gradual process of me getting more and more into it was those kinds of realizations of like, okay, this is good, but how do I make this more an actual part of myself rather than something that I'm like reaching for abstractly? Got it. And then when did you realize you were good at this? I mean, I can imagine that you like it, you want to train, okay, you're getting better, you want to do a fight. What was, was there a specific catalyst that was like, wow, I'm pretty good at this and I can make a professional career out of this? Unfortunately, I think I'm still waiting to feel like I'm good at this. (laughs) But there's a saying in sports that like, you never get better, it just gets harder. Or no, it never gets easier, you just get better. Totally got that backwards. (laughs) So that's why you can stay really passionate about it is that there's no like, okay, I've learned the 10 katas and now I have this color belt and I'm done and I can become a teacher. There's this like endless road of fine tuning and getting better and having deeper understandings of um, even the basic rudimentary things that I've been working on all the same time. Like the kick doesn't change, but your balance on the kick gets better and better and better. It becomes more efficient and harder and things like that. Yeah. And for the folks who might not be aware of Muay Thai, can you help define it? How would you compare, contrast that with Western boxing, with other martial arts like a karate, like, you know, something with katas or, or prescribed movements that gets you this belt ranking system? From my understanding, there's not really a belt system within Muay Thai. And it seems like a lot of the accomplishment is actually based on ability to fight. So much more of practical of a martial art than perhaps more of the point fighting systems that you see in like, like Olympic Taekwondo or something. Uh, can you help give the lay of the land for our listeners? <laughs> uh, I'm what's called Muay Cao. Uh, Muay Cao means like knee fighting. Um, so Muay Thai is the, it's called the science of eight limbs. So you have fists, elbows, knees, kicks. And since you have two of each of those, that adds up to eight. Um, but so there are people who kind of are punch heavy. There are people who are kick heavy. Um, and then there's styles like people who go forward a lot versus people who like to kind of be very technical and stay away. We have that in American boxing as well. They're called punchers versus boxers. Like boxers are more technical. Um, the thing about Muay Cao is it is incredibly grueling. <laughs> like it, uh, it sucks to fight a Muay Cao fighter because we just keep coming. We're like the Terminator. Um, so it requires a lot of uh, endurance um, and strength. And because I fight people bigger than myself, one, my style allows me to fight people bigger than myself. Um, because I try to stay really close. Uh, and two, because I'm quite strong for my size, I'm able to do that. But it, it definitely puts a toll. Um, which style you have is going to determine kind of how you train. There's an incredibly famous uh, pair of fighters who are actually friends of mine. Their names are Dieselnoy, D 
Diesel Noy was named Diesel Noy because he's like a diesel engine. He's like the king of knee fighting. He's super tall for a tie. He's 6'1". He just towered over everyone. When he comes at you with his knees, they're like going into your face when he's barely trying. Um, and then his opposite is a man named Karahat. Uh, and he was like the master of femur fighting. Femur fighting is uh, very technical. And he's small. And he's basically like Sandman. Like he just kind of like melts into different positions and you can't quite catch him. Um, Karahat, who's the evasive one, said that when he was younger, he was actually Muay Cao. He was a knee fighter. But when he got to Bangkok, he was too lazy to train that hard. <laughs> so he became Femur instead. So that kind of explains a little bit about uh, the styles of Muay Thai. But um, for my style as a knee fighter, your training is just so hard. Like you just don't stop. It's it's you train harder than anyone else around you all the time, <laughs> like every day. I actually didn't know there were different styles for the first couple of years I was here. Um, and because I'm small, everyone wanted me to be femur because that's actually uh, more typical for my body size. Um, but it just didn't feel right. Like I just couldn't do it. So you don't get to choose your style quite the way you would in a video game, like when the characters are scrolling by and you pick one. Um, you can a little bit be like, I really like this style. I'm going to lean towards it. But you have like natural tendencies. Um, and my natural tendency was to want to be really close. I really, I lose uh, at a distance because I'm, I'm shorter. People are just go, go gadget way longer than me. Um, so I think that when I discovered that there was a style that fit with the way that I had natural tendencies, that was a huge relief for me. Uh, because then you start seeing people like you, or you start seeing people who are kind of uh, the ideal version of what you tend to do. And you're like, oh, wait, they're actually really good. Like, it's actually really beautiful. Um, so I, I somewhat chose to get really into the style that I was naturally inclined towards, I guess is the way to say it. The man who wrote The Inner Game of Tennis, an incredibly famous uh, mental training book, he says that you need to use feelmages. So he's taking the word images and saying that you need to practice the feeling of something. And when you're really in the zone, like when you're really fighting well, you have feelmages more than like thoughts, like verbal thoughts of like get in. You really don't want words in there. <laughs> it doesn't help. You just yell at yourself. Um, but it's, it's kind of like um, when I'm at a certain distance, I've actually cut off the advantage of my opponent because they have length. So you've come inside their advantage and you feel that it's safer. It's like when a wave is coming at you and you actually dive into it rather than get like hit by it. You kind of have this intuitive like I'm safer here rather than trying to stay back. And so the, the thought process is how do I get into this range that feels more comfortable for me? And your opponent is like, how do I get the hell out of this range <laughs> that she's trying to put me in because I'm more comfortable back here? It's kind of a... Um, where do you stand for, you know, 15, 20 minutes? But it's also a way of life. So it's passed down from generation to generation. At my gym, um, it's the third generation of men. Of The grandfather founded the gym and made his sons fighters that grew up in it. And now his sons are adults and uh, own the gym. And he's teaching his son, who's um, a stadium fighter. And I think that uh, the separation of many martial arts around the world from their roots or from their like culture, it's become this kind of let's practice it as an honorary thing rather than it being a practical way of life for so many people. 
And I think that you can see that in the way that it's practiced in Thailand when you're watching it um, as a sport and the way that it's scored. Um, the, the point systems of many martial arts around the world of like this kick counts for this much or in boxing, modern boxing, I think amateur boxing has influenced it a great deal. So it's how many times have I touched you? Whereas I think if you go back to the 1940s in boxing or even the 1960s in the heyday of um, Muhammad Ali and people like this, there was far more importance on watching the fight as an actual narrative event and how someone is being affected by those points rather than just how many times were you touched on a calculator. Um, and I think that Muay Thai currently, <laughs> we'll see how it goes because it's still developing, but currently it still puts a lot of emphasis on actually seeing the fight as a narrative arc and how the fighters are actually like conversing and uh, affecting each other. Right. So almost in the sort of UFC or MMA terms, like the damage over the points type of a narrative, like who would you rather be at the end of the fight? The person who might've got touched a lot, but wasn't really phased versus someone who got hit a few times really, really hard and has like a bloody nose or something. Tell, tell us about your personal journey through the sport of Muay Thai. I mean, 10 plus year career, over 250 fights, and you have this ambitious goal to have the most fights ever of a multi-fighter. How did you come up with that goal? Why? When I first came to Thailand and saw how different it is here, I knew I wanted to come do this. Uh, the opportunity for fights here is like nowhere else in the world. And so my initial goal was just set at having 50 fights because one, that number seemed absolutely insane at the time. And two, there was a, another small Western woman from Canada, also named Sylvie, incidentally, who um, over the period of five years had achieved 50 fights at the camp that I was training at um, the first time I came out. So it was like impossible, but achievable. Um, but then once I started getting close to 50, we just keep moving the goalpost. I never thought that I currently have 261 fights. I'd never would have come up with that number 10 years ago. It's, <laughs> it's a stupid number. Um, but now that I've seen by reaching these goalposts as I go, and I currently have the highest number of Muay Thai fights of a non-Thai male or female, um, we're reaching for 471 because the highest number of recorded, like there's actually a record of each fight, is this um, British boxer named Len Wickwar, and he had 470 uh, boxing fights. So I want to honor his record by beating it <laughs> with 471. That's an incredible goal. I was just doing some quick mental math here. If you're really doing 261 fights over a 10-year period, you're really fighting once every two weeks, which is, on, on average, which is an insane amount of pressure, load, damage, resilience over that time span. And obviously, this probably is a nice uh, segue into nutrition, your protocols on how you keep your body and your mind at, in, in, in top form. The 261 that I have now is in a seven-year period. That's how long I've been uh, in Thailand. But you're right. It is, it's basically like um, more than 30 fights a year. Um, it definitely requires a great deal of focus. There's a saying they have in Thailand that's if you train a little, you hurt a lot. If you train a lot, you hurt a little. And so it's a matter of um, honoring the process by really working towards um, conditioning your body 
and your mind to that kind of intensity all the time. Um, little kids in Thailand fight a lot. Um, so when you see Thai fighters who have really high number of fights that are in the hundreds, usually most of those fights occurred when they were quite young. And then they kind of slow down as they um, get older and their entire career will be maybe like 10, 12, 15 years, something like that. So what I'm doing is highly unusual. One, in my age, I'm doing this as an adult. But two, I've been doing it consistently for seven years, whereas a lot of these fighters who have bulk, high fight rates will do it in a very short window. It'll be like one or two years that they're fighting like that, and then it slows down. Um, so as far as I understand and know it, I'm entirely unique <laughs> in what I'm doing. Yeah. No, this is fascinating because... When we have elite athletes on this program, oftentimes these are athletes are training to peak at a specific event, right? If you're training for the World Ironman Championships or you're training for the Tour de France, uh, you can have cyclical periodized training blocks to peak at a specific time. But in your very interesting example here, you have to basically be able to be on perpetually which is a very tall challenge. Um, I want to get a sense for folks who might not be aware of what the Muay Thai fight looks like. I know that, you know, folk fans of UFC, five five-minute rounds or three five-minute rounds, boxing, three-minute rounds, maybe up to 12 rounds. So typically in your fights, how long, what's the structure? Uh, how does that look like? Uh, Muay Thai is five rounds. Um, for men, the rounds are three minutes. For women, the rounds are two minutes. Um, and then there's a two-minute break in between each round. The narrative arc of the fight in the way that it's traditionally scored means that you want to increase as you go. So um, rounds one and two don't score as importantly as rounds three and four and onward. So you really want to kind of like arc up as you're fighting. Um, we don't do that in the West. So you'll see a lot of uh, Westerners come to Thailand and burn themselves out in the early rounds and then just kind of look terrible for the scoring rounds and then not understand why they lost because they were so hard at the beginning. Um, and yep. what I'm trying to explain to people who come here why that doesn't work is it's like if you're running a marathon and your first half was really fast, but then your second half was really slow. You don't look awesome finishing your marathon like you really want it to be kind of finishing strong at the end. Um, and because you're strategizing, taking damage, um, exerting yourself as you go, wanting to look better at the end means that you have to train in such a way that it's like having a negative split in running. Um, you need to be able to have the kind of power that your skill is maintained at the end of a fight when you're very fatigued, but you also have to have the skill that allows you to not use all your power at the beginning in order to have some later in the fight as well. Yeah, interesting. That's The negative split concept is fairly interesting because typically for endurance sports, you want to keep equal splits or you assume that your splits will drop a little bit. So this inverse like negative splits is like a pretty unique case, especially for the rules of Muay Thai. I mean, what do you think is the difference? I mean, like the 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 amount of time in combat is very comparable to uh, MMA or boxing, and these people, the professional top level fighters, are fighting once, twice, three, four, maybe four times a year. Why is the velocity in terms of fights so big or so great? 
And how how do how do fighters maintain that level of damage, right? Because again, these are not little patty cake fights. I mean, I'm sure you're taking damage week after week after week plus training. I think that there's a like a moral tendency in the West of how we structure around fights, where you have this like training camp, right? Where like you're you're either training or not training, and so you have a certain amount of time to like get your fitness. And then because in the West they drop an incredible amount of weight, the final part mm. of your training camp leading up to your fight is actually just trying to get your weight down, um, which is so mentally and uh, emotionally consuming, it becomes a fight within itself just to get on the scale and be able to fight. So because we put ourselves through this process, it makes sense that on the other end of the fight, it's a, I need to recover now, stop everything, I'm going to gain 30 pounds go drinking, like whatever the thing is, which is literally the worst thing you can do to your body after you've damaged it so much with inflammation, injury, um, you know, all of the cuts and bruises and things that you're going to be going through. In Thailand, I'm unusual in that I stay um, ready to fight at every moment. The professional fighters at my gym who fight at the National Stadia in Bangkok, so this is like the the higher level um, of fighters, they're ready to fight all the time. They'll have a training window leading up to a fight where they increase in order to kind of like um, build their calluses for the fight, more or less. But they don't drop an incredible amount of weight. They're always fit. They don't like gain a lot of weight between fights. And then after their fight, they will take um, somewhere between like five and seven days off rest to kind of recycle their bodies to come back up. But it's more or less a mental thing because they're going to be doing this for their entire lives and their, well, for their youth, right? So they're going to be doing this for years yeah. and they don't want to burn out. But it's not the same, like, huge up and down that we do in the West. And I think that because we do it that way where it's this, like, um, oh, what is the word I'm thinking of? Abstinence and reward is how we do it in the West. And so it requires this kind of, like, really slow chugging cycling so you can only do that a few times a year if you stay closer to your competition weight you're training all the time you're kind of ready to just bump it at any moment if you get called in as a replacement it's easier to stay going and i use the example for myself why i'm back in the gym immediately after my fights all the time is if you're on a bike and you're trying to climb a hill on the bike if you stop it is so hard (laughs) to restart your bike on a hill So I just try to keep that steady climb all the time because if I stop, I actually feel significantly worse and it's it's really hard to get started again. So I don't I don't like to cycle super high and low. Okay, so it sounds like in the Muay Thai tradition, it's much in the competitive ranks, much more of a life like true lifestyle where constant fighting and training is just and, and staying near fighting weight is just a part of the culture and the style of the sport. But I think in your specific case, you're obviously taking it to the next level where you're literally fighting every couple of weeks. I, I just, I, can't, I mean, I can't even imagine having to go into kind of wanting, you know, going to, to a situation where I'm trying to kill someone and people are trying to kill me every two weeks, take damage, and you're in the gym the next day. Can you talk that through on a physical level and a mental level, how that impacts you and how it's made you I presume incredibly resilient. I'm very small. I'm a uh, hundred pounds and like five foot one on a good day. <laughs> I'm a small person. Um, as I've been fighting over these years, my opponents have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. So 
my average opponent now outweighs me by 10, 15, sometimes 20 pounds. Wow. Because I'm 100 pounds, that is 10, 15, 20% of my body weight bigger than me. That's a lot. So the things that I have to prepare myself for are beyond what would be if I'm just getting in the ring for kind of what's a normal matchup, which they try to make sizes as close as possible. In Thailand, they fight so much that if you're not fighting at one of the stadia, um, they have these things called matchups where they literally just put people together who look similar size. So not everyone is weighing in at every second for all of their fights. If I weighed in for my fights, you would just see on the scale this huge size difference rather than it being, I don't have to make weight is what I'm saying. So I don't have to do this like cutting weight all the time thing that people um, who do do it find very depleting. But because I'm fighting people bigger than myself, the um, damage that I take just from very small things in a fight, like just being kicked by someone who outweighs you by that much has this kind of impact. So I have to take care of my body in a sense of like eating in such a way that it's very anti-inflammatory. I need to be um, taking care of myself in terms of like not overdosing on um, sugars or I don't uh, drink or any of these things like this. I I try to stay um, very healthy in anti-inflammatory ways. But it's also I have to fight in such a way because my opponents are so big that is not necessarily the way I would love to be fighting all the time. Um, I have to stay incredibly close <clears throat> on the inside because of my size that doesn't allow me the kind of flexibility of becoming a really like uh, technical evasive fighter all the time. I have to stay really, really close. And so I have to mentally prepare myself for that in the gym, in the way that I train, which means that I'm training against people who are bigger than me. It means that I'm um, acknowledging in my training space that things that I'm being taught that are kind of for the beauty or art may not necessarily work against someone that much bigger than me, or they might not work in round one, but when they start getting tired, it works in round four. And so you have to have this kind of like patience in what you're doing. Cause it's like, I can't move you right away. Don't lose heart. I can move you later. It just takes longer to like push a big car <laughs> than it does to, like walk a bicycle kind of thing. Um, constantly keeping my body in a state for um, maximizing my physical advantages, which is that for my size, I'm very strong. Um, so the things that I work on are how do you use strength in this context? Um, I don't lift a lot of weights. Um, but I definitely do a lot of push-ups and pull-ups and uh, kind of plyometric exercises like that in order to um, be able to use my strength against a much bigger body and then pull it down into techniques so that I'm not burning myself out. Interesting. Let's focus on the physical attributes, especially around the anti-inflammatory effects you're pursuing with your diet. So as a lot of our listeners know, the ketogenic diet is a common discussion topic on this program. And I think one of the things that I thought was interesting about your story is that usually at very, very high level performance athletes, you tend to see more mixed diet usage because carbohydrates are so useful for anaerobic conditions, especially for something like a fight where you're very, very anaerobic. You're, you're essentially sprinting 
for you know the the, the fight. Obviously, you're not you know fully sprinting, but like you're very very high intensity for that bout. Um, so curious to hear your application of the ketogenic diet. Um, obviously, if you're trying to go much more of a paced bout, it kind of makes sense that you you're prioritizing much more of an aerobic state which a ketogenic diet might be beneficial for. Obviously, it sounds like from the recovery side, the ketogenic diet with this anti-inflammatory effects could be quite beneficial. And then one of the interesting things where ketogenic that has, I've seen been useful is for power to weight ratio. So like a lot of the Tour de France riders, they, they, they cycle in and out of keto to minimize their weight because they want to be as light as possible. Uh, but still have the energy to basically just turn their bodies into pistons to drive their bike up up mountains. Um, so those are, I, I think, are some of the considerations. I'm curious to get from you. Uh, how do you think about the trade off of anaerobic versus aerobic performance on a ketogenic diet? Do you cycle and use carbs before a fight? And in terms of the anti-inflammatory effects, uh, did you experiment with? carbs and keto to see the recovery side curious unpack the the pre-performance as the yeah. recovery as well so when i listen to your podcast you have a lot of scientists and i was a little intimidated by this part because i don't which is very valuable right because i think again if you look at a lot of the randomized controlled trials they're not working with elite athletes and i think you are a very interesting n equals one case study and i think to, to me it's it's that's that's a very valuable point to, to introduce yeah, they also don't really study women, <laughs> which is annoying. Very true. <laughs> um, when I first started doing keto, um, I thought it was going to be a, a little more difficult than it actually has turned out to be. Not in a like, I have to eat carbs way, but because I'm living in Thailand, everything is rice and noodles. <laughs> um, I was going to ask that. I have a kitchen. <laughs> yeah. I have a kitchen, which uh, helps. But it's actually not been as difficult as I thought it would be at all because uh, the ketogenic diet is so primary. Like, it's, you just find meat and vegetable and you're fine. Um, when I initially started, I actually had zero understanding or interest in what the ketogenic diet could do for physical athletic performance. Um, I was slightly worried that it might bring down my endurance a little bit because of the way we've been taught about carbs. Um, but because I'm such an endurance athlete anyway, I'm like the cardio monster of my gym. I was like, I could take a hit on that side and still be pretty good. Why I wanted to do keto is actually for the mental benefits that it mm. gives you. Um, the lifestyle that I lead as a Muay Thai fighter, I'm training like four to six hours a day. You train twice a day in the morning and in the evening. Um, and it's, pretty heavy like you're doing um pad work with a trainer hitting the bag shadow uh conditioning you're sparring and clinching which is the like inside grappling um that is my my uh specialty in fighting so it's actually incredibly fatiguing but as much as i love muay thai when you fully dedicate yourself to it and have this passion for something what makes you so happy also rips you apart <laughs> In terms of like, am I getting better? Why did I suck today? Like this person who normally at the gym, I don't have a hard time dealing with today kicked my ass. Like the the mental highs and lows of the intensity of my training uh, was something that was evident to me was something that needed to be addressed. Like mental training is important, but I thought in what I'd heard about keto, you could use nutrition to bolster that mental emotional side of it so that's initially why i got into keto 
and I noticed a change so fast. Like um, within a few days, I was feeling way more mentally and emotionally stable. I never felt a huge change in my physical capacity in terms of like not having the endurance that I had before when I was eating carbs. Um, the change was so negligible, I honestly couldn't tell you if there was a drop or not. But I did try doing like little carb pops before training a couple of times, uh, maybe in the first four months of being keto. And again, I didn't notice any physical change in terms of being, you know, more energetic or, or being able to burst harder or anything like that. But I totally noticed mental changes where I would like my inner coach was way louder when I would try to have carbs before training. Uh, so I stopped that. Um, and I actually was keto for probably close to seven months and was doing intermittent fasting. So I was doing like the eating window, like a 16, eight. And, uh, my husband, uh, had gone keto with me to lose weight. And he was actually borrowing from something he'd done before, which is just eating every other day. Um, and so I started doing it as well. So when I eat, I eat for ketosis. And then every other day I don't eat at all. I train exactly the same way that I do if I'm eating or not eating. And I actually fight fasted 50% of the time because it depends on which day I'm scheduled to fight. So sometimes it's an eat day and sometimes it's not. Um, my energy has zero difference between fasting days and eating days. Is your win rate the same? Like, like totally I'm curious. The same. Literally totally the, same the same statistics. Wow. Same. Um, and the, I actually prefer fighting fasted, um, one, cause I don't have to think about when I'm going to eat or what I'm going to eat before a fight. Uh, but two, I actually feel like my mental focus in a fasted state is much better. Um, which I think makes sense for an athletic event like that. If you, I don't like to go into the whole, like we were primal, like we're primal now kind of thing. Fascinating. I mean, I can give you some context in terms of the research with ketone esters or exogenous ketones, where some of the preliminary research shows improved cognitive performance just with the presence of ketones themselves. So I think there might be that primal argument around evolutionary, when you're hungry, you're more primed to hunt. But there does seem to be a physiological, biochemical rationale that the ketones themselves are fueling the brain and it's making it a lot more alert and, and sharp and there's some early data on animals around anxiolytic effects or anti-anxiety effects so that definitely i think rings true to me in terms of why a lot of people like being in a ketogenic state into competition and I, I, it seems like to me that you're probably so fat adapted and such a fat burner that it almost doesn't matter that like you basically can never cross the anaerobic threshold perhaps i've seen some very very high-end endurance athletes and these are folks who've been training to you know climb mount everest and break a world record like a lightning ascent where you essentially get to basically vo2 max and you never cross the anaerobic threshold so you're basically burning fat primarily until you're already maxed out, which might be in your case because this sounds like carbs don't do anything in terms of burst or not burst, which I'm curious if you've ever done a metabolic uh, test in terms of tracking your respiratory quotient or your ratio of O2 and CO2. Have, have you explored any of those kind of like the biohackery or quantitative side of some of these uh, effects? No, I've, uh, I've done blood tests uh, because that's available to me here where I live. There's a clinic nearby that does it. And so I was basically just checking um, 
you know, what, what my baseline was so that a year into keto, I could test it again and see if there have been any changes. Um, it's, you know, it's for, um, athletes and old people because of where I live. So it's uh, kind of lipids. And, um, I do have traces or like a, a pop in inflammation in my blood. Um, and, and like sure high iron inflammation... levels. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if there's any in Thailand, but that would be interesting to understand. I mean, it, I would guess if I did, you know, place a bet that your anaerobic threshold is probably so high. That's why you're able to, I think that makes sense that you're a cardio monster. And then in terms of carbs, not adding any performance difference, it makes sense. You're probably just so fat adapted that it's very, very high. You're probably never crushing the threshold, even if you're at a VO2 max or max heart rate. Obviously your, your fight volume is super high. You're training almost what back then, back in the gym, the, the day after the fight, I imagine that might be an explanation of why your inf inflammation markers might be a little on the high side because you're never fully recovering. How do you think of the trade-off between giving your time and body to recover, giving your body time to recover versus you have this ambitious goal, getting the world record in terms of number of fights, 471. How do you, how do you think about that trade-off? I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that I just don't stop. So um, it's this constant very short turnover cycle of um, my training or my fighting and my recovery, like they're one thing rather than it being a big long process into a fight and then a like uh, let's party and recover for a long time after. Um, and by having a really short recovery, even after my training sessions, like I'm always injured in training. So I'm always injured in fighting. I'm um, Constantly, the way I eat, how much I sleep, the massages I get, all of these things are so that I can keep going. Um, and I think that not having a really uh, imbalanced, um, let's take time off and uh, kind of stretch out these recovery things, instead having a really fast turnover for recovery, I think has made my body really used to fast recoveries. I think that it has um, made me uh, very... I'm like Wolverine, like <laughs> very fast at healing. Um, I take collagen. Um, like I, I have these little like um, gelatin beads that you put in uh, water and I take that with vitamin C to make sure that all my soft tissue is getting enough uh, nutrients to have like a high turnover. Um, I make sure that I don't eat. I'm keto, so I don't eat sugar or um, yeah. lots of carbs or things that would be causing inflammation in and of themselves. So most of the inflammation I have is like, from the things that I'm doing to myself rather than not eating well. Um, and then of course, trying to, trying to sleep as much as possible. Cause that's when all of this recovery is actually taking place. Um, and you know, just when I get sick or something, I have a little bit of a cold right now. It's just kind of like pulling things down a little bit in order to aid in that recovery. And then you can expand them back out when you're feeling better, that kind of thing. This, this is interesting because I'm way into the temperature thing. And I think that the like heat shock protein um, of sauna takes place in a milder form just training in Thailand anyway, because it is so hot when you're training. <laughs> it's like you're training in a sauna. But I think that you have to do it in a like massively condensed way as well, like literally go into a sauna that's, you know, however many hundred degrees. Um, but why this is interesting is that I've changed over my um, I've been in Thailand almost seven years now. In April, it'll be eight years. Okay. So it's almost eight years. Um, at the beginning I used to ice, like after my fights, I would sit in an ice bath. I bought this, I'm small. So I bought this like, um, container 
that you can like store clothes in <laughs> and I would put ice in it and put myself in it. Um, and I realized that ice really is not good. Like, um, it, it just constricts everything. And I think it actually makes healing slower. Um, and in Thai cultural knowledge, like what my trainers, um, have everyone do, they'll have you ice like in the first 24 hours if you're swelling or something like that. But here it's all heat. Um, and so using like hot water, hot washcloths, um, for like bumps and bruises and cuts, I get cut a lot. So I started actually putting heat on my stitches, um, to try to make the blood flow a lot faster. And I think that I'm a huge, um, I'm a huge advocate for heat. I don't even really use ice anymore. Even if it's kind of swollen, I'll just give it a little bit of time and then start the heat so that the, um, blood can really flow. So in terms of biohacks, the way you asked the question, I'm like, no, <laughs> but in terms of reality, yeah, I do totally use like a sauna and a cold pool. Um, and, I try to do uh, heat on everything. I wanted to get into the electrolyte question because that's been an interesting subtopic uh, around sodium versus potassium. And I've had some interesting conversations with folks who say that, again, to your point, that a lot of people focus on the sodium part of electrolyte, right, salt. But the potassium part um, is perhaps underrated and you actually look at more ancestral diets, potassium was much more readily available than salt, right? Like there are historical records where salt used to be its worth in gold. Uh, so for keto, there's an interesting subthought that you want to be prioritizing, obviously both sodium because you're sweating so much uh, for athletic use cases, but for just keto in general, making sure you have enough potassium. Curious to dive into your specific point there, how'd you uncover the potassium, uh, I guess, deficiency? What were the symptoms? How did you correct it? Are you using supplements or are you just focus on high potassium foods? How did you correct that? I was not aware of uh, any kind of electrolyte deficiency until I went keto yeah. and I was doing research and it was talking about how important it was to supplement with electrolytes when you go keto. Um, so that's when my own personal experience of it became very real. Um, <clears throat> I did know, <clears throat> sorry, I did know that you have to like take powders and things like this um, when you're sweating a lot. And it was just kind of a like um, loose association in the way that Americans are like, oh, I'm working hard. I should drink a Gatorade. Like you don't really understand what any of that is. It's just like sport and electrolyte kind of go together. Um, but when I went keto and I actually started taking um, salt, potassium and magnesium purposefully and actually measuring it out, I could not believe the change it made, uh, not only in energy levels, but mentally, like being able to actually focus on what I was doing. Um, I think that a lot of people who especially come to Thailand and they go from training kind of hard in America to training really hard uh, in Thailand because it's twice a day, it's really grueling, it's very hot. Um, I think a lot of the things that people associate with overtraining, which um, I kind of don't buy into the idea of people experiencing overtraining as frequently as they think they do, a lot of it I think is just electrolyte deficiency. Um, and because I'm keto, I can't really supplement that much uh, with food for potassium. You can't eat bananas. Uh, how many avocados can you really eat kind of thing? So um, I take cream of tartar which does have some carbs in it and it can be a little bit hard on the stomach. Um, but the difference I feel 
uh, even when I'm traveling, like my husband and I will be in the car for like 12 hours driving up to one of my fights and I'll just be feeling like so tired and like grouchy, <laughs> just not in a good mood. And it's like, oh, I should take some potassium and I'll take just, you know, like a, a teaspoon of potassium and I'll feel better in like 15 minutes. It's crazy fast. I think it's actually really dangerous uh, how much people don't know about electrolytes. And given that they help the function of the basically electrics of your body, like your your pulse, your heart, like all of these different things, I think that in my sport, because people cut weight to fight, when you're dehydrating your body like that, if you don't understand how electrolytes work, a lot of these cases where people are passing out or even dying from cutting weight, I suspect have a lot to do with um, electrolytes more than actually the the intensity of the weight cut itself. Yeah, I think that definitely seems to be a, a big debug for a lot of people that are just starting keto for the first time because the electrolyte uh, considerations are very different from the typical uh, recommended daily allowance. Um, I want to shift gears to the mental aspect, and I, I feel like I have like a small insight into your life in the sense that I had a charity boxing match about two years ago. And when I said that, it's like, you want to kill the other person and the other person wants to kill you. Like, that's literally how I felt. I felt like you're in, you're in the ring with the other person and something switches on. You see their eyes. Their eyes are like really showing this primal like fear, anticipation. And you can just kind of sense that they're trying to kill you and you want to kill them. Uh, and then you, you break it up and then it's like, it's all, it's all great. Most people just never, I think, experience that kind of life or death kind of visceral emotion. I mean, I think, and that's probably a good thing, right? That like we're in a, just a civilization that you don't have to try to kill or be killed. Um, but I, I, I can maybe kind of imagine what it's like to do that on a daily, weekly basis. Probably not. I mean, like, th but this is your life. You... How has it, how has that changed your mental state in normal life? Do you just feel like the volume is turned down in terms of if things phase you? I, I can just imagine that like just everyday problems of maybe someone honking at you on the street or I don't know, you know, having to pay a bill or something. Does all that noise just turn down more? How do you think your mental resilience has changed over? Your, your fighting career. There's a thing about uh, being a fighter, I think, when, when you're really into it, which is that you kind of, you're sculpting yourself rather than really building yourself. Like, you don't actually become something that you never were before. There are elements of who you already are that are maybe super subdued uh, prior to being a fighter, and being a fighter allows you to, like working a muscle, um, kind of accentuate that element of yourself and it becomes stronger. Uh, and then other elements of yourself that you might have had if you weren't a fighter that were more dominant will kind of get suppressed down. Um, so you're kind of like reshaping yourself rather than like taking things that you weren't before and like tacking them together to make some kind of Frankenstein's monster situation. Um, so I think that parts of myself that uh, were incredibly hidden uh, when I wasn't a fighter because I'm such a shy person have kind of, uh, been flexed and have come to the forefront a lot more by being a fighter. Um, and then my shyness, <laughs> I'm incredibly shy, uh, has been forced to be kind of like in the background, 
um, a lot more than it was when I was, you know, a college student or something. Um, so I, I don't think that I have, um, major differences in the way that I move around in like regular space in the world. Like I'm, I'm not like starting fights with people in big C or something. Um, but I definitely have these small things like, um, how, how far away from someone I normally would stand when I was younger because I'm very shy versus the confidence I have if someone stands too close to me in line, like I don't get as upset about it. It's kind of like a different body mapping. Um, and I think that when I look at people, I actually, I'm like, oh, she's in my weight class, <laughs> which I never, ever would have thought <laughs> prior to being a fighter. Yeah, I, I, that makes sense. I think there, it is hard to shift your personality traits. I think I've, I've thought about... I think your particular description of you, I think we all have pretty set attributes of different personality traits and you might be able to mold them for certain social contexts, right? Like I think the best social chameleons can very much change their personalities for different social settings, but we definitely do have some base set point. Um, and it's interesting to see that you felt that some of these attributes definitely carry into the fight world as well in the street, which is kind of a funny way to think about it. Like you being accommodating in the, in, in the ring, um, that's kind of antithetical to uh, what fighting is about, but hopefully that means that you're an honorable fighter, right? <laughs> One of the uh, audience questions I wanted to cover is that usually when you think of fighters, these are usually associated with men, but what are the unique challenges you found as a, as a female fighter? There are many challenges. There are many challenges being a female fighter anywhere in the world. Um, women often, there are not a lot of us in any given gym. There's like one to five, like five women in a gym would be a big deal. So you don't often have other female training partners. Um, you're often kind of like the exception to be one of the guys and accepted or not, or you're left out. Uh, or if there's only a few women in your gym, you're paired with the other woman just because she's another woman and not anything to do with your size or skill level. Whereas men don't have that experience um, as often. Uh, occasionally that'll happen. But men just have a much bigger pool of people to train with. Um, they're kind of more automatically accepted as fighters um, or identified as fighters, even if they don't really deserve it. Uh, women are constantly having to kind of like uh, justify ourselves in the space um, and re-justify yourself in the space. It's not a meritocracy at all, like anywhere. Um, a difficulty with fighting is that, especially in, well, I don't know if it's especially in Thailand, but for sure in Thailand, the promoters of female fights are kind of a separate thing. So there are promoters who know female fighters and they'll put female fighters on their card. Um, and sometimes they'll do all female fight shows, but they tend to be a little bit wonky. Like they'll, um, only be three rounds. Uh, you might have to wear makeup in the ring. <laughs> the way they promote it is always a little bit like, um, you know, foxy boxing, even if the women are really good. Um, so it can be really frustrating in terms of like people who you respect and who you've, uh, really demonstrated to, how much of value you are and how hard you work. Uh, like my own trainer, he's known me for almost six years now. I still have to ask for things that none of the men in my gym ever have to ask for. It's just given to them. Um, I still have to prove myself, even though I've been proving myself for six years kind of thing. And then um, in terms of like what the ceiling is, uh, in terms of accomplishments, like 
any of the belts that women will be fighting for are just way less organized and legitimate than uh, some of the opportunities that men have for belts and titles. Um, and women are not allowed to fight in the national stadia of Thailand, which is like the pinnacle of fighting. So Raja Damnern and Lumpani are these very, very famous stadia in Bangkok, and women aren't even allowed to touch the ring there. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's frustrating, um, and it's difficult, and it's something that women literally everywhere in the world experience to some degree, and it's just really frustrating. Um, but I think that it uh, lends itself to the tenacity of women who want to be fighters, that like, even though it's going to be so trying and so emotional and so uh, unfair, that you still push yourself that much harder, I think is really cool. It's a very cool quality of women. So how do f our, our listeners find you? So you mentioned you have a Patreon page. What are your channels? It sounds like you have a lot of fights coming up. So I don't know if people are, ha happen to be in town in Thailand can, can find your fights, but what are your channels? Where do people find you? What are the shout outs? 2020 is going to be an amazing and hard year. <laughs> I'm just always pushing. Uh, so my, uh, my fight rate is something that I'm just trying to keep even, um, all kinds of different elements come into play in terms of what makes it easier or harder to find fights. So I'm just working on that all the time. Um, I'm working on the preserve the legacy project, which is part of my patron, which is preserving and archiving the uh, very fast disappearing techniques of Muay Thai in Thailand and the men from the golden age who kind of carry them. Uh, you can literally just Google Sylvie and Moy and you will find me cause I'm everywhere. Uh, but the most important places to find me are my patron. Um, it's patreon.com Sylvie Moy, uh, and YouTube and Facebook, uh, are where people tend to be really, really stoked about all the different things that they can find that I'm working on there. Yeah. I'm sure that like a lot of our listeners will be, would love to follow your journey. Thanks so much for being on the program. This is a really fun conversation. Thank you very much. If you're interested to learn more about HVMN, visit www.hvmn.com slash pod. Thank you for tuning in.